Have you ever wondered why you seem to make the same mistakes again and again in your relationships? Have you ever wondered why you're scared to get close? Or maybe on the other end, you're so needy and require constant reassurance. One thing that can help is learning your attachment style as it will be a life changer. In this episode, I talk with Ginger Dean from Loving Me After We about attachment styles and how it affects your mental and financial health. The Mental Health and Wealth Show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. This is host Melanie Locker. And first of all, I want to acknowledge that you are brave and amazing for being here. Getting ready to listen to a show about mental health and money is not easy, and I know you are ready for these amazing conversations. But before you listen, I want to let you know that all of my content is based on my own personal experience with mental health and money, as well as the experiences and expertise of my guests. I'm not a mental health professional or a financial professional, so content should not be considered professional, medical, or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. So if you're currently in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today's episode is going to be juicy as we are talking about relationships. I am interviewing Ginger Dean, a psychotherapist and founder of Loving Me After We. Her specialty is helping women overcome heartbreak, increase self-love and confidence after a toxic relationship so they can become the best version of themselves. I love it. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Melanie. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm so excited that you're here. You know, we've gone way back for a while in the personal finance space, and I love what you are doing with loving me after we. I love your Instagram and your Facebook group and everything that you're doing. So, you know, before we jump into the questions, I'd love for you to just tell our audience a little bit about what you do and and the community that you've started. All right. So my name is Ginger Dean. And as you said, I'm the founder of Loving Me After We. And that's where I help women healing after toxic relationships, increase their confidence so they can become the best version of themselves. So that might mean, you know, we cover a lot of topics around codependency, toxic relationships, childhood trauma, attachment issues. Of course, um, topics around narcissistic abuse do come up, but it's probably not my central focus. But those are pretty much the central issues that we cover over at Loving Me After We. It is such a helpful community. And I have to say that, you know, I went through an incredibly devastating breakup three years ago. I ended my nine-year relationship and that was probably the hardest thing I ever did. I didn't realize it was codependent until afterwards. And, you know, cause I had all of this, these feelings of like, why do I feel like my life has ended and why is everything so hard? And then I got into a really toxic rebound where I was always wanting more and he was always standoffish. And that's really how I kind of got turned on to this book called Attached, which was mm-hmm. completely life-changing and eye-opening. I, I feel like I read Attached And suddenly everything made sense. I was like, oh, this is why I've behaved the way I've behaved in every single relationship. (laughs) Like I am a classic love anxious, not, not proud of it, but it was good for me to realize that, oh, this is actually a thing. And, you know, as a love anxious person, I've attracted uh, avoidant types and, you know, it's just like magnets and we just can't give each other what they want. So, you know, that really just 
completely changed my life when I had just dug into the research and it really gave me insight into why I behave the way I behave, my own relationships. Uh, I'm happy to report that I'm in a new relationship with a securely attached person and my own behavior has changed and I've done so much healing in the past three years. So can you explain to our audience a little bit about attachment styles and how they affect relationships? Because to be quite honest, I never even knew about them until after this breakup and rebound when I was like, why am I in such a mess? And, you know, it just opened up my eyes. So can you share that with our audience? Well, attachment styles are developed based on, you know, how we were raised. For example, our caregivers, our source figures, um, like teachers, coaches, mentors, grandparents, aunts, and I guess, you know, also our parents. And so what can happen is depending on how we were raised, we can end up being either secure, anxious, fearful avoidant, or dismissive avoidance. And so with the anxious types, you'll find that they're very overly concerned about whether or not their partners love them. They will often, you know, audition, perform in relationships. They're very hypersensitive to abandonment issues, whether it's thoughts or just the perception around abandonment and rejection. And so they're often preoccupied with abandonment. However, because they haven't really learned how to become secure because that was never really modeled for them, they tend to go after the partners that modeled how their parents were growing up. So if your parent was, you know, for example, and it doesn't have to be that it was, they were deliberately emotionally neglectful. Sometimes it's happening. It's really about the dynamic. You could have had a parent that came home every single night, but let's just say they were preoccupied with like financial issues. So maybe they didn't, there was a period of time where they didn't spend a lot of time with you. Right. And so your mind, your body, your brain, it all holds on to that feeling. And so in trying to secure that love, again, that you missed growing up, you'll choose someone who models that for you as an adult. Um, With fearful avoidance, they tend to have parents who were very overbearing, um, required a lot from them. The relationships are often very transactional. So those children might have felt really burdened growing up and also having their emotional needs ignored as a result. And so they don't really know what it's like to meet other people's needs. However, they do crave the emotional connection in the relationships, however, when it gets too intense, meaning the person gets too close emotionally, they may start to pull away. And so that's where you have like ghosting, you know, the ghosting that tends to happen. Dismissive avoidance, they're on the far end of the spectrum uh, simply because they're really immune to empathy. They're really immune to having compassion for their partners. I often say that fearful avoidance keep you arm and arm's length away from them. But dismissive avoidance will keep you a whole football field away from them simply because they're the types that will have, um, you know, one night stands, the person catches feelings and then they just pretend like, well, why would you catch feelings? I don't like you. And it's very, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) you know, like having an emotional connection is just absolutely very foreign to them. They're not at all open to an emotional connection. They're not the types to have high emotional IQ. They're very extreme in terms of the lengths that they will go to in order to avoid having that emotional connection. You'll find that they might, they might gaslight you. Um, they may engage in a lot of manipulative and controlling behaviors. But again, there are levels to this, right? Because both fearful and dismissive avoidance engage in it. However, with, I will say with fearful avoidance, they do tend to show up initially as secure, 
But then mm. as time goes on, when the person wants more, they're wanting to get closer to them emotionally, they're like, uh, I don't really know if I want to do this. And they kind of back off. But with dismissive avoidance, you kind of know upfront who they are. They don't really make any excuses unless they're really overtly wanting to manipulate the situation to get what they want. But you can usually tell in your in early and initial interactions with them that they're not open to, they don't know how to cultivate an emotional connection. However, when we've grown up with parents like this, it feels like home. It feels normal. So when someone says to me or a client says to me, well, they feel like home. I just feel like I've known them forever. Well, if home wasn't a safe place to be and you grew up with someone who was dismissive or fearful, they're going to feel like home to you. And that's why we often have, I'm glad that you read the book Attached because I think it opens everyone's eyes to the fact that the runner, chaser, distancer dynamic, it's just, it's exhausting. And so when you start to look at your own wounding and you start to look at how you were raised, and again, I like to stress that the majority of the population doesn't have childhood issues that should have warranted an episode on law and order or where the police should have come to their house. The vast majority of us don't. It's really that we've normalized a lot of dysfunction. And so the things that we think are normal, they're probably not that normal. They're not really healthy. And so it's really less about having, say, someone who was, you know, should have been removed from your home, though it can be, and really more so about the dynamic. I've had people tell me, well, you know, mom went back to school or mom went back to work after being home for so long. And I all of a sudden didn't have anyone to talk to about what was going on with me at school. And I felt abandoned when she went back to work. In that situation, their relationship was fine growing up. But the feeling of being abandoned and then perhaps being bullied at school and not having anyone to talk about started with mom going back to work. So it's not really about the relationship with mom, but not having the access to mom. And I'm not bashing uh, work, you know, working parents here, but I'm just saying that I gave that example so that you understand that it's really not about having a horrible narcissistic parent all the time. It can be that you had a perfectly fine um, relationship with your parents, but something happened along the way to disrupt the attachment there. It's not always that your parents are chronically emotionally neglectful or that they intended to do it or that we even need to villainize them if this were the case. Sometimes they have their own issues going on and it simply impacted the way that we then attach to our romantic partners as adults. So that's why I often say, um, yeah, you know, are there people out there that have parents that, you know, were, they should not have been parents? Yes. But I would say a good amount of us have parents that were well-intended. They just have their issues that they needed help working through. And then, you know, in the process as parents, they kind of dropped the ball in different ways. So it's not always about a parent that's chronically, you know, abusive or neglectful. Totally. And I was actually surprised to read in the book, happily surprised that the majority of people are actually secure. So tell me about these so-called unicorns. I call them unicorns because I'm jealous, but, <laughs> you know, tell me about these securely attached types. So with secure attachment, um, they had parents with great relational skills. Their parents held space for them. They made it normal to, you know, for example, if a child has like a bad day at school, typically what will happen is, you know, the parents upset with them and they punish them. I've had parents, you know, tell me I sent them upstairs without um, dinner for the evening because they had a red day at school or because they came, they came home with a report card that had F's and D's on it. A secure parent, a healthy parent will hold space for their child. 
to let them tell them like what's going on. What do you need help with? How can I be helpful? They're really open to the emotional experience of their children versus kind of making it more like transactional. Like I send you to school, you're supposed to do your work. You need to bring home A's and that's it. And then that child learns that, well, I only get love, attention, and affection when I'm doing well. I'm not lovable when I'm not, right? And so with secure parents, they're able to hold space for their children. And whether or not they knowingly do this, they don't engage in, I would say, largely what we call largely dysfunctional behaviors. Little things like... um your mommy's good little girl. I love you so much. Mommy loves it so much when you're being a good little girl. And we don't realize that we're telling that child that she's loved when she's being good. When really Mm. the messaging needs to be that you are loved regardless of how you show up today. You are loved regardless of whether or not you have an F or a D. I'll usually tell the parents, you know, if they bring home a bad, you know, like a red day, like if the teacher said, hey, they had a really bad day at school today, or if they bring home a D, we act as if nothing's wrong. When they walk into the home, They get the hug, they get the kisses, they get dinner. And maybe at the end of the day, you sit with them and you say, hey, so your teacher told me, you know, X happened. Can you tell me a little bit about what's going on? And you use the same tone as if you're asking them what dessert they want after dinner. Because again, you want them to feel like just because they had a bad day doesn't mean that they're a bad person that should be punished and have love withheld from them. If you think about it, in some of these relationships, what do we do when we're disappointed in someone? We run away. We get ghosted sometimes. We may go away for a few hours and not talk to them or become unresponsive. Well, we learned that in childhood. With secure parenting, what they're doing, or what we like to call conscious parenting, what they're doing is making sure that their children feel loved, safe, seen, heard, and validated for the majority of the time. And again, we call them unicorns simply because you don't really see a lot of it in parenting these days, right? Parenting tends to have a lot of ego grounded into how we do modern day parenting these days. And it's like, you kind of have to take a step back and realize that we're raising little, we're raising adults. We're not raising children. We're raising, we want to raise healthy adults. So when we're starting to look at how we're going to parent as healthy parents, what we need to do is really begin to ask ourselves, am I holding space for my child's emotional experience? Am I validating them? validation is something that's so incredibly important. It's the first thing that we learn in grad school is how to validate a client's emotions. And so if you've grown up with a history of parents who are just chronically invalidating you, you're going to more than likely date someone who's doing the same thing to you because that's what you've learned. And courtesy of repetitive compulsion, you'll go ahead and repeat that pattern. Oh, that's so fascinating because I definitely think that people keep repeating their parental dynamics in romantic relationships until they heal and address that trauma. And Mm -hmm. what I learned in my own healing journey, because before my breakup, I thought I had a healthy relationship and it wasn't until afterwards when I just stepped out of it. And then I saw how I was reacting afterwards. I was like, Oh, this was really codependent and dysfunctional. And I didn't even like when you're in a dysfunctional relationship and that's what you're used to, it seems normal to you. (laughs) So you don't even know that you're in the dysfunction. So when you can start to heal and step away, you're like, Oh, this was not healthy. And, you know, I think that's so beautiful that you said it's all about validation and holding space for people, you know, regardless, because yeah, that whole, like you're a good little girl. That's how we teach women to perform for love and you're only good when you're producing or when you're doing this or when you're doing that. And 
that's so fascinating. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because, you know, recently on Instagram, there's been all this talk about capitalism and how so much of our worth is grounded in production. Right. And I think with, I may be veering off a little bit here, but it's connected. Um, one of the things we're finding is that with the pandemic, a lot of people are home and they're realizing that, my gosh, so much of who I think I am and should be has to do with me producing, performing, auditioning. So the workplace, for instance, they're finding that, hey, we're being forced to have our workers work from home and I have to trust them, right? Workers are also finding that, hey, I can do a lot more with the time I do have. Like, I'm because we're at work, we're kind of like, we BS around a lot. And so they realize like, oh, okay, I actually do need downtime. I actually do need time to myself. In relationships, we think that if we are performing all the time and we're cooking and cleaning and we're doing all these different things, they're more about mothering or fathering someone than if we just really showed up as our authentic self, not needing to have to produce or to perform for love. So the same dynamics that we have at home, we tend to carry into the workplace, which is why sometimes we have toxic bosses that mirror sometimes our parental wounds or, you know, our attachment wounds that come from our parents. Totally. Yeah. I I recently came to this conclusion this summer, like, am I a workaholic or am I just trying to uncover, you know, not deal with any pain or trauma? And I think a lot of people kind of hide in that workaholism because it feels like you're doing something productive and feels like it's worthy where it's like, you don't have to do anything to be worthy. Like, you can just exist and be worthy. You were born and you're worthy. Like, But exactly. we do ha- have this idea that we have to constantly produce something. And I think a lot of that can come back to trauma responses. And, you know, something that I've learned from your work as well as through Attached and other professionals is once you can realize that so many people's behaviors are just trauma responses, like everything just looks so different with that lens. I totally agree. And I think that we have to really start looking at, you know, there's the compassion that we have to have for people because there's this meme on Instagram that says, when you understand that a person's behavior has a lot to do with how they were raised, you have grace, right? But then there's also boundaries that we have to have with certain folks because then they'll use their trauma as a reason as to why and a justification as to why they should be able to treat you in a certain way or show up in a certain way in relationships. But really, no, I can understand and have compassion for you and how you show up and also realize that I need to have boundaries so that I'm not hurt in the process. So maybe, you know, allowing that person to go ahead and do their own internal work while you have the boundary that says, I don't need to be treated like this. And so when you complete your work, maybe we can talk or if not, then no. But having boundaries is going to be so essential when we're dealing with, you know, attachment issues, which and I would say the vast majority of us have attachment issues just depending. And it just varies on a a spectrum, I would say. I love that you mentioned compassion, grace and boundaries so that, yes, you know, we can understand someone that, oh, the reason you're probably acting this way is because of your own issues. But then, yes, I don't necessarily need to put up with that because I'm on my own healing journey and I deserve the love and types of relationships that I really want. So, you know, kind of on that note, I know that anxious and avoidant types tend to be like magnets despite not being able to give what the other needs So how do these attachment styles affect people's mental health just 
you know, to share a little bit about my own personal experience, as I mentioned, I learned that I was anxious. And after my long-term relationship ended, I went into this rebound and this person was so classic avoidant, but I didn't know it at the time. And it's like, I would text and it would take him 24 hours to respond. And I would just be, I would just be going insane for 24 hours. I'd be texting all my friends. Do you think he's dumping me? Do you think he likes me? What's going on? Like, and it would, this was like the whole time for six months. And I still just was expecting it to get better and it never did. And it drove me bananas. So I know personally, like it can really affect your mental health, but I'd love to hear from your perspective. Like how does being an anxious and or avoidant affect people's mental health? I think with the anxious types, because, you know, we see it overtly with anxious types because they're willing to say, Hey, why haven't you called me? I haven't heard from you. You know, do you still love me? Oh my God. Is our relationship okay? Like we hear it. Right. And there, that's a lot of, you know, anxiety. That's a lot of internal distress that they're having to manage. Then there's also the reactivity that comes along with that. When you didn't hear from this person, you know, sometimes what can happen is we can like blow up on them because we're like, Oh my God, I haven't heard from you. And it feels like abandonment. It feels like a rejection. And the impact that it has on your mental health is that it takes a stab at your core wounds, right? Around abandonment, around rejection, around not feeling good enough. And what does that lead to? More anxious feelings, um, sometimes even depressive feelings. You know, sometimes anxiety and depression, they chase each other like cats and dogs. So I have patients where, you know, some people are solidly anxious, some people are solidly depressed. But then you have people where they get so anxious and wound up and they're just unable to manage it. But then the anxiety itself wears you down. It absolutely just leaves you feeling so fatigued. You're down and then you're depressed. But then you start to get depressed. You stay there for a little while, but then you start to get anxious because you've been too too depressed for too long. And then, and whether that lasts for two days, two months, or two years, um, really it's a faster cycle event. So I would say about two weeks. So let's just say you've been depressed for about two weeks. Then what can happen is you'll start to get anxious again and then it'll chase you. They chase each other. So in terms of your mental health, you never really feel stable and balanced because you know that at some point a switch is coming, whether it's you get more depressed or you just get anxious again. And I'm not talking about necessarily like bipolar disorder or anything like that. It's more so you're going through the ups and downs when that person finally gets back in touch with you. If you're anxious, you feel good, right? But then you're anxious about whether or not that person's going to dip out on you again, right? And when they do dip out on you, you get anxious, but then you also get depressed. So there's that roller coaster of emotions that you just find hard to manage if you're from the anxious type. In terms of avoidance, they have the same anxiety. They just do a better job of hiding it. They they internalize it. So if you're an anxious person yelling and being really demanding of an, an avoidant person, their anxiety starts to kick up. But what they do instead of moving towards you, just like an anxious person would, they move away from you. They don't call as much. They don't respond as much. They feel super overwhelmed by having to even interact with you simply because for them, their nervous system is activated. But for anxious people, it gets activated and they want to talk about it. They want to express themselves. With avoidance, they don't. They want to pull away so that they can calm down and kind of get back to themselves. And that's why they retreat the way that they do. So it's just as hectic for them. Their coping skill is just that they pull away. With anxious people, they move towards the person. And the reason why, you know, we will say, well, who wouldn't realize that this person can't give you what you need? It's really not about, we don't really go into relationships thinking this person's going to give me what I need consciously. We go into it 
unconsciously to prove what we already feel about ourselves based on our history. So an avoidant person will get into a relationship with a anxious person simply because they've had an overbearing parent. Who does the anxious person mirror that overbearing parent who wants more and more and more, but And because the relationship feels transactional, they're just like, I don't want to do this. And so they back away. So as adults, they do the backing away that they wish they could have done when they were children. And so for them, it's it's going to be key to be able to self-soothe, right? For an anxious person, it's the same thing to be able to self-soothe and really ask themselves, you know, am I triggered right now based on what this person wants or am I triggered based on what my history how my history is unfolded because typically an anxious person is typically just asking for a text back, a phone call back for you to respond in a time that's like respectful. They're typically asking for your emotional presence for an avoidant. They don't, they don't really want to do that. So the anxious person typically isn't at, at first asking for anything that's outlandish. Now, if they've been in a relationship for a really long time, it starts to build and it can feel overwhelming for the avoidant person, but that's because they spent so much time avoiding the anxious person and the anxious person just kind of goes into overdrive for the avoidant. Now they have to realize that I have to learn how to be present, right? Because in having an emotionally overbearing parent, even though they were like maybe helicopter parents who were always there and always demanding emotionally, they were not present to be able to validate and meet their needs, right? So they end up dating people who they're there, they're giving them attention, but usually anxious folks are not able to be emotionally present to really see and meet the needs of someone who's avoided or just to be able to meet the needs of their partner because they're so preoccupied with having their own needs met. And not because they are selfish or anything like that, but again, with anxious types, they default to the preoccupation around whether or not they're being loved, whether or not they're going to be abandoned or rejected. So there's often very little emotional space to really be concerned about how that other person is feeling or what their emotional experience is. And again, not because they, they're not capable of it, but when you're so anxious and in distress all the time, it's hard to really worry about someone else's feelings. Same thing with avoidance. Their anxiety and distress is just, they don't really show it, but that's what they're feeling. They can't really attend to the needs of other people because they're busy trying to manage what's going on within themselves. So that's why they pull away. Oh, that's such a good point. And when I was doing my healing work, you know, it's obvious to be like, oh, avoidance are just emotionally unavailable. But then I remember in one of the things I read, it was like, anxious people are also unavailable because they're so preoccupied with the other person that they're not actually being present and available at all. And I was like, oh my gosh, it was like a mirror looking back at me. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'm part of the problem too. And, you know, it's so easy to want to just blame other people in relationships on why everything's not working, but obviously a relationship is two people. And so that was one of the defining moments in my healing to be like, oh, wow, like that's, the way I'm not showing up is I'm so preoccupied and anxious about this certain outcome that I'm not really being present to what I need to what the other person needs. I'm not listening. I'm just preoccupied. Yes. Yes. And that's, that is a 
that's a truth bomb for a lot of anxious types because they just tend to think, well, I want a relationship. I'm always worried about the relationship. Of course I want a relationship. Well, because you're so preoccupied with your own needs. And again, not because you're, you know, you're selfish, but just because that's just your emotional space and where you are and what you have the capacity for. You're not really emotionally available because you're also choosing people because you're so preoccupied one and two, you're choosing people that can't attend to your needs, right? So you're not attending to your needs. The partners that you're choosing aren't attending to your needs. So you're not by default, you're not going to be that emotionally available in your relationships because there's this book by David Rico called how to be an adult in relationships where he talks about, you know, the anxious person needing to learn how to step back and really attend to their own internal experience. And then also with the avoidant, them needing to learn how to stand still and be present, not, you know, while they're being disrespected, but more so really wanting to listen to what the anxious person needs and then also attending to their own emotional needs while also giving the anxious person more boundaries, you know, and saying, well, you know, I can't talk to you right now. However, can we make a time to talk around seven o'clock tonight where we can talk about what's going on? But then the anxious person will need to be able to respect that boundary and be present for it instead of like, you know, if it's three o'clock between three and seven o'clock, the anxious person might call and text 50 times, which will result in the, the avoidant person saying, nope, I'm not going to do this. And they just walk away. So when we're spending the time attending to our own emotional experience, then we can make time and space to be able to be emotionally present for the other person. So the anxious person may need to realize that, hey, the intensity that I bring to this dynamic is actually resulting in the stress, um, the pullback, the avoidance that this person often shows me, which makes me anxious, right? So really understanding that they're a part of the dynamic and what's going on. It's not, they're not the, they're not causing it but they're also contributing to it. And I think that can be a little bit difficult for some anxious types to understand just as much as it might be hard for avoidant types to understand that when they pull away, they create more of the distress in the anxious person that they actually don't want to deal with. So if they just actually attended to their own emotional experience internally and really learned how to self-soothe, both types need to learn how to self-soothe then they're able to, you know, garner the emotional capacity or the emotional bandwidth to hold space for the other person. I love that. So before we get on to the next question, you brought up the topic of self-soothing. Um, what tips do you have for people to self-soothe when, let's say, they're anxious and they're feeling that emotional distress of like, oh, they haven't texted back, I don't know what's happening, or the avoidant person where they feel completely overwhelmed and suffocated by this person? So with self-soothing, um, it's different for everyone, but I would say anything that I like to say this, anything that leaves you feeling, oh, right? It's like that, like for me, it's aromatherapy baths, right? I love them. For some people, it's going to a sauna. For some people, it's getting a massage. It doesn't have to be anything extravagant, right? For some people, it's, you know, are you familiar with, um, I think it's called ASMR on Instagram. There's a hashtag. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. For a lot of my clients, they love that. And so they will go and watch also, it's like just so many of those videos because it's so soothing to them. So for instance, one that I like to watch, oddly enough, is um, shaving soap. 
they'll cut all <laughs> these different things into them and they'll start to shave it. And I'm like, oh, this is so soothing to watch, right? And so that's a form of self-soothing, right? So you just have to, uh, what I like to do is go on to Pinterest. They have so many different lists of like self-soothing, self-care tips. And I think we all have to just figure out what works for us. So some of my clients like to go hiking, especially now because it's outside. They don't necessarily have to do it with anyone else, but that wouldn't work for me. So I love, love, love aromatherapy baths. I mean, I can't, especially now during the pandemic, when you can't see your family, can't hug people like you usually do. Um, an aromatherapy bath is just so soothing. So really figuring out for yourself, if you're on the anxious end of the spectrum and you find yourself dealing with waves of anxiety throughout the day, that is a really good way to really, really remind your body that you're safe and that you're in control. But a lot of times as anxious types, we're looking for that soothing from the other person in terms of their presence, when really we need to learn how to be present with ourselves via self-soothing. Yes, it's so important to learn how to soothe yourself and how to get that validation and self-love. And I'm so glad you mentioned these tips. Like I actually have this list on my fridge. It's called the what makes me feel good list. And I Mm -hmm. created it because when you're in that high anxiety, you know, whether it's work or relationships or whatever it may be, it's hard to think straight about what you should do or what you want to do. And so I literally just had this list on my fridge called the what makes me feel good list. And it's like, take a bath, pet my cats go read, listen to jazz, sing, go for a walk, watch Shit's Creek, um, watch Wizard of Oz, uh, you know, text a friend. And I just have all of these things where I'm like, look, I have at least a dozen things on here that make me feel good. And they're mostly free and they're easy to do. And I just need to do them and sometimes do them in combination, sometimes do them for longer periods of time, but, but they work. And I highly recommend other people do that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they actually do work. And I think everyone's unique in terms of like what works for them. I remember in grad school, um, was in grad school, but then also I worked on this women's trauma team. And I remember her saying, you know, you need to have a self-soothing or a self-care basket. And so what we did was we we had this in services where we'd have to cut out magazine pictures of things that we'd want to do. We'd have to actually go and purchase a gift card at a massage parlor, um, a gift card to like our favorite restaurant because when you're stressed out, you're not really thinking, Oh, what can I do to go and take care of myself? But if you have that basket just kind of sitting there with ideas, tips and actual things that you can go do. So if I already have that gift card, it's already purchased. I can go to the massage parlor at the end of the day. So really being proactive and just conscious about what you need in order to self soothe and to relax, especially now. Right. So Putting together a list of things. I like what you did. Like you have it on your fridge. You can have a basket of things. You can have a list on your phone of things that you like to do and make sure that you kind of like think to yourself, well, if I am in distress, what can I actually do in this moment that is known to help calm me down? Right. So for some people, it's hiking. For some people, it's an aromatherapy bath. For some people, it's going to get a massage. It's just different for everyone. So make sure that you're trying different things to figure out for yourself what actually works. Not, well, here's a list of 1001 self-care and self-soothing tips. Let me go try a couple. Really work with them to figure out what actually works for you because that will trip a lot of people up. They'll start doing it. And some things will work for their friends and or people on the internet and some people won't work for them. So it's really about finding out what works for you in terms of self-care. And I say that, I stress it because so many of us are new or just we're, it's a foreign idea to take care of ourselves. 
And so we really do have to kind of like figure out like what actually works for us. Yes, it's so important to find out what works for you individually, because we're Mm -hmm. not all the same. And I kind of wanted to go deeper a little bit into this anxious avoidant kind of dynamic. And a lot of people who are a lot of anxious people who end up dating avoidant types, maybe end up getting ghosted, or they leave. And you know, obviously, right now, ghosting is a huge thing. And you know, dating culture and online culture, and a lot of people tend to characterize this bad behavior in relationships as narcissism. Um, Can you clarify exactly what that is and how that would play out in relationships? I'm probably going to get, you know, mange for this, but a lot of the behavior that we tend to think of as narcissistic isn't, right? We're dealing with people who are chronically emotionally immature. So someone ghosting you isn't a sign of narcissistic abuse, but do narcissists do that? Absolutely. Here's the thing, and a lot of people don't like to hear this because I just did a post about this on Instagram. Um, narcissists, like bona fide people who you know would be or are diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, are very rare. We like to think that because they don't actually go seeking help, that that's why we are not able to count them. But that's not true. It's actually very rare. Now, do we have people that have traits? Absolutely. So if in the DSM. You know, if it's going to be seven bullet points in terms of the criteria that needs to be met for narcissism, you need to have at least five in order to meet the criteria, right? Some people may have three. Some people may have four. It doesn't mean that they're actual narcissists, right? Now, in terms of narcissistic abuse, um, you know, there's just tend tend to be like a lot of verbal abuse. It's chronic. I mean, the thing about narcissistic abuse you want to look at is, is it chronic and unyielding? Right. There are people with whom you can have conversations and change happens or you go to therapy and then change happens with someone who's a narcissist or someone who's engaging in narcissistic abuse. It's not going to change. It does not change. So it looks like verbal abuse. Right. It can look like, you know, belittling your concerns or your needs, name calling. It looks like, you know, um, undermining you all the time, interrupting you. A big cue for me is um, let's just say you're sick. And you're in the hospital or you're having a birthday party and they need to be there for you because the attention will be shifted from them onto you and they can't. So let's just say they disappear. They start an argument and, you know, now all the focus is on them. That tends to be a narcissistic trait because they're unable to put their needs aside in order to focus on you. So it's really about chronic unyielding abusive behavior. Um, Someone ghosting you once or twice isn't narcissistic abuse. It feels awful, don't get me wrong, but that's not narcissistic abuse. Emotional blackmail is one of them. Again, manipulation, giving you, you know, over and covert signs of aggression, for example. What else? Um, gaslighting, that's pretty popular. Gaslighting is so common that we tend to just think it's something that happens in narcissistic abusive relationships, but it's not. It's actually, gaslighting is really just talking someone else out of their feelings. So, if I say, well, I know that the I know that the sky is blue, and here are the pictures that the sky is blue, right? And the person says, No, you're stupid. The sky is pink. What are you talking about? That's gaslighting you, right? So for mm-hmm. example, 
If you see a text message come up on your partner's phone that says, hey, did I leave my red panties over there at the house? And you saw it. You know that you saw this. And they're like, no, you're stupid. You're just jealous and insecure. Why would you even think that? That didn't, that never happened. And you know that you saw the text message come up on their phone, right? You may have even taken a picture of it. You may have even emailed it to yourself and they'll still deny it. That's gaslighting you. It's really talking you out of your feelings. And the reason why that's so awful, it's because we're not validating the person in the moment about what it is that they're about their emotional experience. And so it happens to, a, I would say to a less, um, to a lesser degree in just regular relationships. Like we may say, Oh no, that's not, I didn't actually say that, or I didn't make you feel that way. Well, the person's telling you, this is how you made me feel. Your response really just needs to be something along the lines of, you know, okay, so tell me more about how that made you feel so I can understand how not to do this again. What we might experience on the other hand is, oh, please, you're just, you're just insecure. You're just too sensitive, you know? And so with narcissistic abuse, it's chronic, it's unyielding, it's undermining, it's psychologically harmful. And so what you want to look at is when someone doesn't respect your boundaries, for example, you know, let's just say you say, Hey, I'd prefer it if you not call my mother every time we have an argument and they will call your mother and talk nasty about you to your mother, talk nasty about you to your friends. They'll post nasty things about you on Facebook or on the internet or on social media. Um, that can be seen as very narcissistic because it's really about causing or creating emotional harm. Does that make sense? That makes so much sense. And thank you so much for clarifying kind of the difference between having narcissistic traits and actually, you know, being narcissistic on the DSM um, guidelines as well as abuse. And I think, you know, kind of this chronic pattern is, is really um, what is important. So thank you so much for shedding light on that. Mm -hmm. um, switching gears a little bit, because this is the mental health and wealth show, I wanted to talk a little bit about money and relationships. So what are some financial red flags that people should look for in relationships? Oh boy. <laughs> I wrote about this on girls just when I have friends once. Um, so in terms of um, financial red flags, people should look for, I would say overtly controlling behavior is one of them. And of course, as you know, this is why I think that women just need to have their own money. But for example, if you don't cook dinner the right way, then I'm not going to give you money to buy deodorant. For example, I don't allow you to have your own bank account that I don't have access to. Um, a big one for me is, and because I see it a lot, is not paying child support, but being able to, for example, buy yourself all the lavish gifts. That's a big red flag. Having a wow. bunch of collections that you're just not intending to pay for because, well, they have a partner that's, you know, willing to foot the bill for them. I would say those are big financial red flags for me. Just having bills that you're not in. I think. You know, as you know, in the personal finance space, there are people who have bills that they're just not able to pay for whatever reason, job loss. Um, they just don't have, you know, the, the financial acumen to understand how to pay down debt, for example. But there are people who run up credit cards, they owe people money, and they have zero intention of rectifying that. That is a huge financial red flag because guess what? You will become one of those people they do that to. So you want someone who... In, I want to say, I don't want to bring morals into it. It's more so they're responsible. They're financially responsible. They don't use money to wield power and control in the relationship. And 
perhaps one of the biggest issues I tend to have is this idea that women shouldn't in a relationship or a marriage should not have their own money, their, their own cash. So if someone is against you having your own bank account, for example, that's a big problem because we're all human. Whether we're married or not, if something happens and you start to act crazy, I need to know that I have money stashed away so that I can make my way out of this relationship just in case you get crazy. And it happens. Um, I was just listening to an IGTV the other day where the person said, well, well, if you feel like you have to have your own money, then you know you should just leave. Well, sometimes the person needs to stash their own money so that they can leave because it is an abusive relationship. So there are many ways in which, you know, people can just really control you with finances. One of them might be, you know, again, if you're not acting right in a relationship, they will absolutely make sure that you can't go grocery shopping. You can't buy necessary things for yourself or the children. I've had people tell me, um, oh, they had to have their paycheck deposited into their partner's account that they did not have access to. Wow. yeah, if then that person would give them an allowance and literally if if they went over by a penny or two in terms of the allowance on Amazon, for example, just buying routine groceries or things for their children, then uh, it resulted in you don't get an allowance next month. Yeah, that is definitely financial abuse. And I think two of the most common things that I see that are issues obviously are financial abuse where one partner is very controlling and then also financial enabling when, you know, yeah, Mm -hmm. someone might not be responsible with their finances and they can't pay rent and they can't do anything. And then someone keeps supporting them and, you know, they might think that they're, they're helping them, but really they're just enabling them to stay stuck and they're not able to support themselves. Mm -hmm. I agree. So uh, I think parents typically do that, right? Because even though they may be dealing with an adult, they don't want their child to fail. So they may, you know, end up paying the car note on a car that they finance because the child said, well, I'll pay the bill, but they never end up doing it. So they just keep on footing the bill. That person never really learns financial responsibility. And the other part of that is, um, and I talked about this in that post, it was about never getting a job, which forces your partner to always be the one that's working. So that person might run up a credit card bill. So now you have a bigger credit card bill that month. Well, now you probably have to take on extra shifts at work to be able to pay that, pay that down, for example. So that's another way that we do financial enabling is that we, we won't hold them. We won't make them responsible instead of saying, well, can you take on extra hours at work? Can you take on, you know, an extra part-time job so we can pay down this debt because, you know, you actually ran this bill up. It's no, I'm just going to pay it because you're not going to do it. And it enables them to continue on with that behavior. Totally. I love that. Um, obviously money is a huge source of conflict among couples. And, you know, I'm curious what you think are the main money conflicts. And just kind of as a side note, I wrote an article a couple of years ago about my own opinions on what money conflicts are actually about. So, you know, this can be a two-part question of what are the main money conflicts and what are they really about? And the article that I wrote are, you know, I think really we think it's about money, but usually it's about power. It's about respect. It's about control. It's about values. So just wanted to kind of add that, but I'm curious to what you think, you know, what are the main money conflicts among couples and what are they really about? I think the main money conflict tends to be who's a spender and who's a saver. 
you know, and again, values around money growing up. Sometimes, you know, you have people that didn't grow up with a lot of money, but then I mean, now that they have money now as adults, they're spending it wildly, right? And that may trigger the person who is a saver, who's like, no, 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 we need to save this money because maybe they didn't have a lot of money growing up and they just want to hoard the money. They want to save money. Nothing necessarily wrong with wanting to save money, but the two practices are diametrically opposed to each other. So someone who's spending money wildly in terms of money psychology, because they may not be used to having money, spending that money down until like, for example, people who make six figures and they're living check to check and they don't have to live check to check because it's really about their spending habits. They're spending their money down. They're spending their savings down every, every two weeks when they get paid because there's a part of them that doesn't really feel that they deserve to have that money. So they spend it down routinely to bring them back to just, you know, just over broke before payday. Um, for the person who is a saver, they may not, of course, they're not going to like that because they're just like, no, I want to have, you know, I want to be able to save my money. I don't want to spend it. But they too have issues because it's, the fear that drives them to hoard the money may become may be problematic as well. And so both parties need to learn how to come into the middle to be able to address whatever issues they have because both people tend to be at extremes. Whenever there's conflicts like this, one or both parties just tend to be at an extreme which triggers the other person. And so the other person may feel like they're losing power because if you're broke and you're in a shelter somewhere, you don't have any control over your life. You don't have any power anymore. So money conflict is largely about internal or external conflicts. And so we have to take a look at how we're spending money. Because again, if the feeling that you're used to, and again, it kind of goes back to what we've been talking about with attachment. If the feeling that you're used to is being broke, being penniless, um, having to scrape together pennies before payday, even if you're making multiple six figures, you can still find ways to spend that money down, bringing you back to that same feeling of, oh, I can't wait for my next client payment. I can't wait for my next payment to come in. Because even though you're making the money, your brain and your body are used to the feelings of being financially just strained. And so you will continue to repeat that pattern until you realize that you're no longer in that space and really beginning to self-soothe around what it means to have not to, well, to not have money, but then also to have it because having money brings up a lot of anxiety for people as well because of how their relationships might need to change as a result of it. Yeah, I think money brings up kind of all of this baggage that we have growing up. And then, you know, we go from one person to kind of a partnership and we have to find that common ground and that balance of, of values and respect and control and responsibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's so important when... You know, when we have money issues in relationships, you know, they say that money is one of the leading causes of divorce. And it's no surprise because it has a lot to do with power and control. So people have a lot of conflicts around, for example, prenups, because that's about power and control. There's a lot of conflicts around spenders versus savers, because again, it comes back to power and control. And when we understand what we've been taught about money growing up, then we can understand how we're actually handling it, misusing it, using it now today as adults and how that may mirror some of the old patterns that we engaged in growing up. Totally love that. Um, switching gears a little bit, I wanted to see like, what is your advice for someone who wants to support their partner suffering from a mental health issue? I would say... Support them 
by holding space for them in terms of validating how they're feeling, not trying to quote unquote fix them. But then also I would say in terms of context here, in terms of my realm, in terms of what I see having boundaries around making sure that that person's actually getting help. In terms of codependent relationships, we often find ourselves being someone's therapist, being someone's fixer, wanting that person to, you know, we often want to be for that person what we wish either someone would have been for us or been for one of our parents. And so we want to hold space for them. We want to validate how they're feeling. We don't want to fix them. We don't want to be dismissive to how they're feeling. But we also want to make sure that they're doing the work in order to get help. Because ultimately what will happen is you will become that therapist. You will become that fixer and it will ruin your relationship. So I think supporting them in any way that you can, but then also being mindful of your own boundaries as well. I think that is so important. I know when I was going to therapy and really kind of working on some of my codependent issues, my therapist was telling me like, you can't have your partner be your partner, your best friend, your therapist, you know, your Mm -hmm. confidant and everything. You need to have separate roles. And so now it's like, okay, I have an actual therapist. I have an actual best friend and you're going to have two roles, you know, my partner and my lover and that's it. You know, I have other people to fill those needs because we can't put all of those roles onto our partners because that's what makes them so easy to break when there's that much pressure. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's crazy because so many of us will feel like, you know, my partner needs to be my everything really. And really, that's really about you wanting another parent, right? Because our parents are everything. Our parents can predict our needs. It's kind of like when someone says to me, um, you're just supposed to know what I need without me having to tell you. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, that's- really? Am I, am I a mind reader? <laughs> no, but you know, like your parents are supposed to do that, right? They're supposed to like know what you need. And we kind of take that into our relationships. Like, yes, you're supposed to know what I need. Well, no, you have to tell them. You have to communicate these things. So, yeah, it's it's often something that's really hard for a lot of people to deal with because it really, because then that makes them responsible for trying to meet some of their own needs or trying to have some of those needs met with a therapist, for example, or with a coach or just someone else who has that job title of supporting them in that way. And I think that when we're so, when we're struggling with mental illness, um, I mean, the thing about it is depression, anxiety, is, it's really common nowadays, right? So we just have to be able to normalize the fact that some people might be struggling but then also normalize having boundaries and having adult, healthy adult relationships where we're not showing up for each other as our parents versus our partners. Because the other thing that tends to happen is when we show up as parents versus partners, all the passion in that relationship goes to hell because Ooh, you're, yes. no long- <laughs> yeah, like you're no longer that person's passionate partner. You're their mom, you're their parent, you're their partner, and it doesn't feel good anymore. You're just fixing them hoping that they're going to become well again so that they can, you know, get back to being romantic and passionate with you. But unless we jump out of that role, that will not happen. Yeah, it's so not sexy. And it's a great way to just kill that spark and also lead to so much resentment and the ultimate demise of a relationship. (laughs) Ask me how I know. Um, So uh, part of your mission is to increase self-love and confidence, which I love. I think that's so crucial, especially after devastating heartbreaks. You know, what are the mental and financial health benefits of actually doing that? 
He said the mental and financial benefits of increasing self-love and confidence. Well, for example, with my one of my Facebook groups, I always tell them, you know, healing codependence isn't just about trying to get your boyfriend back or get your partner back. So many other areas of your life open up after you start to heal, right? And healing, there's no there's no final destination. It's an ongoing process, just like when we go to the gym, right? We're always going to the gym so that we can keep our body in condition, you know, top condition. Same thing with our emotional health. We do the same thing. And so when we're healing after codependency, for example, in terms of our self-love, if we're looking at finances, we're not going to be spending our money down to the, you know, to the last penny right before payday because we love ourselves enough to want to create security for ourselves, right? Um, when we're healing codependence and healing after toxic relationships, our confidence allows us, for example, to ask for that raise at work, start that business, to be able to go out there, step out there and put yourself out there. I know that for me, one of my biggest issues was when I was work, when I was um, with Girls Just Want to Have Funds, I was largely able to kind of like sit behind the scenes for the most part. And one of the reasons why I did not step out and um, start loving me after we back in 2015, 2016 is because I was so scared of just being seen, right? I was like, who wants to listen to me, right? And my friends mm-hmm. would be like, uh, but people are listening to you at Girls Just Want to Have Funds. Why wouldn't they listen to you over here? I'm like, well, it's just different. You have to be so much more transparent and open. And with Girls Just Want to Have Funds, you know, we're writing about finance articles. Um, sure, we're writing about relationships, but it wasn't nearly as personal as this is for me now. And so one of the things that I had to learn how to do was allow myself to be seen, to allow myself to be, because Lord, in this, in this niche, in this sandbox, you know, being misunderstood is something that you have to welcome because not mm. everyone is going to be open to hearing the message that would actually require them to change a lot of their own behaviors. And I was afraid of, well, this is the internet and they're going to hate me because they're not going to want to hear a lot of this stuff because I knew what my one-on-one clients were going through with me. And I said, well, you know what, let me just go ahead and just make a few posts on Instagram and see how this, you know, see how they like it. And everything took off essentially, I probably would say like mid-year last year into this year. And I can legitimately say if I hadn't gone through some things with a former boss of mine, I wouldn't be here because she encouraged me to have boundaries. She encouraged me to really step into my quote unquote power because I was so afraid of being seen because I was used to being in relationships. I got divorced several years ago where I was in a marriage where I just wasn't feeling seen. I wasn't feeling hurt. And I was just so used to that. And so once I went through my own healing journey, I felt like it was safe for me to step out there and to be seen and to be heard um, while also continuing on in my own journey. Because there's still things today that I still have to process, you know, being on the Internet and being so open and being so visible. And so when we are when we're really working to heal and we're increasing the self-love, increasing the confidence the other domains of our lives start to open up in ways that we never ever would have considered in the past. And that's what a lot of the girls inside the inner circle are realizing. They're just like, wait a minute. So I've been playing small at my job and not asking for a raise, not going back to grad school because I didn't think I could because they've been so mired in the drama of their relationships and trying to get their needs met by people who are not designed to meet them. Once they learned how to, once they're starting to learn how to meet those needs for themselves, co-regulate with a therapist, co-regulate with a coach, um, just even with the other girls in the group, they're starting to realize like, wait, so there are these other areas of my life that my confidence and self-love lends itself to. 
And so now they're able to succeed in other areas and it feels just really good. So in terms of our mental health, it can really help to boost our confidence because now instead of feeling so depressed about a relationship by, you know, not having our needs met by someone who is not designed to meet them, we can actually go start with ourselves and then begin to choose partners that validate us, hold emotional space for us, that have the bandwidth to be there for us and really can serve as a place from which we can feel secure so that we can operate on a higher level. Yes, I love that. And you know, when you are really focused on increasing your self-love and confidence, you are able to kind of turn away things that aren't good for you anymore much faster than you would before. And, you know, like you said, it really can help kind of decrease your anxiety and depression and also increase your security and your self-worth. And like you said, it can lead to, you know, because you're confident, then you're able to ask for a raise. You're able to speak up at work. You're able to actually speak up with friends and say what you want and need. And to be able to do that can just add so much value to your life and just be a complete game changer. Absolutely. I remember with Girls Just Want to Have Funds, you know, in talking about women and money, there was always this component around abuse. And I realized that one of the things I was starting to realize towards, um, I would say 2014, 2015 is just like how many women would approach me because they're in abusive relationships, you know, where money was a factor, where they're being controlled and abused with money. And that's when I started to make the connection between toxic relationships and financial abuse. And like, duh, of course, this was, you know, this is what was going on in my own marriage. And uh, It was amazing to me how much codependency permeated other areas of our lives, how much dysfunctional behavior was, you know, showing up in these women where they wanted to make their own money, but because of their own confidence issues, they couldn't because maybe they had a partner that would not support them. And then when you looked at the relationship a little bit more, you saw that, well, there was just a lot of emotional abuse that was happening in that relationship, which dampened their confidence to be able to go out there and do more than what they were doing previously. Ah, yes. I love this. And thank you so much for sharing all of your expertise. This has been such an amazing episode. And I know this is going to provide so much value for people. Hopefully it's going to blow some people's minds and get them on their (laughs) healing journey or expedite those next few steps. So where can people find you? I'm most active on Instagram at lovingmeafterwe. My website is lovingmeafterwe.com. So that's pretty much where folks can find me. And that's where I tend to talk about, you know, a lot about codependency, toxic relationships. There you'll also find um, information about my monthly membership, which is called the Inner Circle. And that's where women, again, they learn how to heal after toxic relationships. I talk a lot about, you know, what X is in terms of a toxic relationship and the different issues surrounding it. But we learn how to heal these patterns inside the inner circle, which is my monthly membership. Love that. Can people work with you directly or just through the inner circle? Yes. So I also do one-on-one coaching. Um, A lot of the members who are in the inner circle are also one-on-one coaching clients. And so that's something that they can learn about also in terms of the link, the links that are on my Instagram profile. So if they want, if they're interested in one-on-one coaching with me, then go to Instagram at lovingmeafterwe.com and then click on the link in my bio and you'll have all the information there in terms of how to work with me one-on-one. Perfect. Hopefully people reach out and thank you so much for providing all of your expertise. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to reconnect with you.
Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe and leave a review. If you want to suggest a topic or simply say hello, you can reach me at mentalhealthandwealthshow at gmail.com. You can check out the rest of our content at mentalhealthandwealth.com. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.